Um, so our guest, uh, Victoria Wojcicka, uh, has just arrived. Uh, so please welcome Victoria. Um, Victoria was a member of the Ukrainian parliament from 2014 to 2019 um, and is now advocating for Ukraine uh, with the International Center for Ukrainian Victory. Uh, she is a great friend to the space. Uh, so please, everybody, uh, welcome Victoria. Victoria, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today. And um, I don't know, but what's the way you're dealing with uh, the speakers? Uh, should they make like a short uh, um, introductory or like an opening speech? Or shall we go to the questions straight away? Whatever suits the audience, uh, it's fine with me. If you would introduce yourself more thoroughly than I've been able to, um, and also talk uh, talk a little about your work, talk a little about the International Center of Ukrainian Victory, um, and uh, we'll do that for a bit. Um, I'm sure my co-hosts, myself and the panel, have a couple of questions, and then we'll open it up to the wider audience, if that's okay. Sure, Tim. Thank you. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Victoria Wojcicka, and indeed... Um, after the revolution of dignity in which I actively participated, I decided it was the time to not just being an active um, citizen in terms of going to the streets and, and protesting, but actually take responsibility for reforming um, our country. So I've joined uh, a, a party, some appointment, uh, based uh, from Lviv, uh, with the uh, Lviv city mayor as uh, the chairman of the party. Um, it was the first try of, of the party to get to the parliament, and I truly believe that we brought the best people uh, to the parliament. Although we were only 33 um, members, still I believe we made it quite a significant impact on the reform agenda and specifically on the agenda related to national security. We were the ones who were um, um, pushing for Ukraine to recognize that we have a war with uh, Russia, not um, anti-terrorist um, um, actions, as they were called initially. Uh, we were pushing for uh, the fact that we need to have policies and strategies towards occupied territories and etc. I was a member of Energy Committee, as you rightly mentioned. Um, I was the secretary of that committee, so I was responsible for energy security uh, issues related to reforming our energy sector and um, like uh, introducing laws on electricity market, gas market, reforming um, uh, corporate governance of state-owned uh, energy companies, etc. And um, okay, it seems like my parking is no good, and I need to repark a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, it's okay. I'm terrible at parking as well. Still, still haven't quite <laughs> worked just it out. A, a tram is trying to pass by my car and it can't. So anyway, so uh, yes, um, for five years I was actively uh, involved in reforming our country, and uh, one of the key agenda items was to uh, get rid of the corruption um, that was fueled by influence of uh, a few the Ukrainian oligarchs and. Um, 
I believe we had quite a lot of successful stories there. Still yet a lot to do um, left after we've finished our convocation. And um, then I came back to private sector and uh, um, together with uh, my um, colleagues also established uh, like a law um, NGO that was also advocating for the reforms in educational um, system of Ukraine that would allow to get rid of the corruption there as well. So in parallel, I was doing uh, some work in private sector and still um, being involved in uh, political uh, arena just a little bit in uh, education in education on education matters in particular well um, in this year um, my friends from that was uh, back in September October they've started sending warning signals that we need to be aware that the big war is coming and um, since I was a active participant in the Eurobaidan um before more oriented MP in the previous convocation, etc., etc., family um, was in the kill list, and I should be aware of that, and I should do everything to make sure that my family, my kids, are safe. And um, they kept on telling me this, and uh, I remember uh, weeks before the full-scale invasion in Kiev. Um, so two weeks prior to. February 24th, I took my kids and brought them to in-laws who live in outskirts of Kiev. Victoria. Yes. Can you hear me well? Victoria, I'm very sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you're starting to break up a little. Uh, It sounds like you're having phone reception issues. If you could move back to where you were standing five minutes ago, that would be great. Okay. So now it's, it's the challenge of finding the place where to park with a good coverage. What about now? Is it better now? Uh, marginally better, yes. Thank Is it you. Better Thank now. You so, uh, together with yes. my friends, yeah, good. So, so, together with my friends from civil societies and former MPs, uh, women with kids, we met in Warsaw, um, beginning of March, and uh, we were starting to discuss. Uh, so, what are we going to do? How can we help Ukraine in this dire year times? And this is when we decided that uh, we cannot just sit and uh, watch what is, and this is why we've uh, established this uh, advocacy platform um, in Poland, which is called International Center for Ukrainian Victory. We have a couple of key areas which we together, and it's a group of over 15 people all together. Uh, we are um, uh, covering issues and, and trying to promote and get as much help as needed in respect of military assistance. So basically, that's that's the introduction. Um, we're working with um, uh, politicians uh, in uh, uh, Berlin, in uh, uh, Paris, Stockholm, Brussels, Washington. Um, one of the our uh, of the items on our agenda was obviously to advocate for Ukrainian to get um, EU candidacy status, and we've successfully did that. Uh, from day one, we were advocating together with uh, Daria Kalinyu, Hanna Hopko, Olena Halushka to get uh, uh, military assistance and the land lease that we 
successfully got from the US. Uh, we assume that we had a little but a little bit of the contribution to that success. But there is still lots of things to do, uh, lots of things on, on the agenda list. We have right now uh, one of our delegations in Washington, and the, they are advocating for more military support from the U.S. Uh, moreover, to have a clear statement, we expect that the U.S. will come with a clear statement when it comes to um, Germany to provide tanks to Ukraine, that they, the U.S. will encourage Germany to actually do what they promised. And um, so I can talk about it for a long time. I think it's better if you start asking me questions that would be more effective and efficient. Of course, of course. Thank you very much for that uh, for that introduction, Victoria. Really appreciate it. And uh, apologies for the audio issues we're having. Um, so, in terms of your work in uh, in advocacy, um, at what level are you engaging with uh, uh, with Western and regional governments, and how are you finding uh, how are you finding the access and the reception that you're getting? Has it been has it been fairly easy and positive, or is it a bit of a slog? Or how how's that working out for you, as uh, Sarah Palin once put, once put it? Well, um, I can tell you this, it's um, improving. Um, during our first visit to Berlin, for example, back in, I think it was end of March, beginning of April, we were trying to set uh, meetings with um, MPs uh, from CDU, but guess what? None of them replied to our uh, kind request at the same time, Mr. Mertz, uh, 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 the, the, I mean, SDU, uh, the, the governing party, and Mr. Mertz, the head of the um, uh, opposition, gladly met with us. And instead of like giving us 30 minutes, he um, would talk to us for one hour and 30 minutes and would tweet about it and post pictures about it. So, um, we met with the representatives of uh, uh, of Green Party, and we felt quite a good support from their side. And the uh, the head of the faction um, was always and still is, um, which is really good and great, uh, a friend of ours. And next time we had the next meeting, um, it was a completely different setup. We had uh, a joint foreign um, affairs and uh, uh, defense committee over 15 MPs, most of them from the coalition were there, including the, the, the Mr. Scholz party. And uh, we met with um, Mr. Short's uh, um, employees in, in the chancellor as well. Uh, we were quite uh, well received. But um, when it comes to uh, delivering what is promised during all of those meetings, that's a big question mark. I can tell you this. So when this is what... Uh, is happening when it comes to Berlin. In Brussels, um, we have, are meeting with top of officials there, and uh, especially the members of European uh, Parliament. They all was welcoming us, but are still saying that um, major decisions are made at the state level, so it's more effective and efficient to work with the politicians and civil societies and journalists uh, at the local level. 
In Washington, D.C., when I had my first visit there, we were meeting with people from the State Department, USAID, um, National Security, uh, and um, so the, the, the level uh, of the meetings are quite high. The question is to get the results that we're aiming for, uh, because we want everything right here, right now. And of course, in politics, it doesn't work this way, but when we think about the cost the of delays it's the lives that are lost it's the uh, all the tragedies that are happening at the ukrainian families levels it's the destructions that are being caused by um russia we just cannot afford like waiting you know um, from the emotional point of view it's really hard when you hear comments yes we need to think about it we need to consider thank you for pointing it out but 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 and those buts it's really hard to hear thank you i mean this this leads us on to my next question um uh, your website mentions that uh, you have been doing work documenting uh, russia's war crimes and crimes against humanity during their invasion of ukraine um, and also establishing a tribunal to that effect. Um, could you talk a little more around um, both of those things, uh, particularly with regards to the tribunal, um, you know, who your, who your cooperation partners are, you know, by, by what authority is it being established? Is it a Ukrainian thing, a Polish thing, an EU thing, an ICC thing? Um, could you give us a bit more color on that? What I would suggest, it's the area where Olga Ivazovska, she is from Opora NGO, she's uh, and her uh, team group is working on that. I think it will be more uh, effective uh, or, or it will be uh, right way uh, to, to for them to describe all the um, peculiarities of the process that they're going through. Um, they have set up um, a specific function uh, like an instrument in Poland where they're collecting the information from people, from Ukrainians. Uh, they're working with the Office of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine and with international institutions. But in more details, I think it's better if she gives you, she briefs you on on the specifics of the process because I, I'm not uh, or involved in that uh, myself. We have in our group different people are responsible for different um, aspects. It's just overwhelming to be. Uh, would be an overwhelming to be an expert in each and every um, direction. Sure, thank you. Um, on a philosophical level, though, do you feel that um, Russia's extensive crimes against humanity and against the Ukrainian people in particular should be, you know, should be a, a question of international jurisdiction? Or do you believe that this is very much uh, something that Kiev should be, uh, should be uh, prosecuting under domestic law? Well, I think it should be done both in Ukraine and um, at the international level. And I can explain why. After World War II, um, you remember the phrase that is quite um, well known and uh, widely used, especially in Germany, never again. And that never again... Uh, was actually um, supported by the fact that there was an international tribunal on the one hand. On the other hand, when it comes to Germany, uh, what we see, and I personally see, 
what they've lost is the first part of this phrase. Never forget, so to never again uh, have such atrocities and uh, crimes so that they would never repeat, be repeated again. So I think it's important to um, recognize, and I think we see that already today's statement by Ursula von der Leyen about the, the war in Europe, uh, that it's uh, basically uh, a war in European country that is happening right now on European soil. Her words, and not just her words, um, they support the notion that it's not just a Ukrainian war, a war of Russia against Ukraine. It's just the war of one empire um, against democratic world. And this war has different forms. It has uh, forms of uh, uh, the combat war in Ukraine. It has a form of energy war that is been happening for years. It's just for some reason some European countries and overall European Union has decided for some time to not see it coming and evolving because the, the energy war in, in Europe started back in 2021, not this year. Um, it uh, has other forms like chemical war, um, the poisoning that was happening, that happened in the UK, uh, Novichok case, uh, Novichok case, and other forms, uh, uh, the cyber attacks on energy infrastructure. So uh, we have to recognize that uh, Russia is fighting numerous um, fronts. Informational warfare is also happening for years. And it's happening not just against Ukraine. Ukraine is just one of the uh, parts of the war um, from the physical point of view, like to take uh, control of a territory and commit uh, uh, the, uh, uh, crimes, uh, the genocide against Ukrainian uh, nation. is This is what is on um, Russian's agenda. But it doesn't stop there. And I think European Union and European countries, most of them recognize it. So my question and my, my answer is that we need both. Absolutely. Um, I, I have one follow up question that I believe finance has a couple of questions for you. Um, when it comes to international jurisdiction, do you do you see a danger of fueling, you know, Russians, Russia's persecution narrative here? Um, you know, the, the ICC being an organ of the United Nations, you know, they they have this spin where, you know, they have this siege mentality where they say that everybody is against them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you think uh, an international international tribunals of, of whatever in, in whatever form they may emerge? Um, do you think they might be almost counterproductive when it comes to uh, when it comes to Russia? Russia lives in its own narrative, the one that's being imposed uh, and the one that Russian people want to accept. Uh, I think there is a perfect match of uh, both sides. And uh, whatever happens, um, unless there are certain um, steps, actions, take place in um, Russia, and I'm not talking about getting rid of Putin only. 
I think uh, Russia as the prison of nation, the state itself, uh, the empire should finally uh, be dissolved into independent states and independent nations should have the right to uh, exist finally. And unless that happens, the imperialistic view on the world will prevail no matter where and how the uh, International Criminal Court is going to be set up. Uh, so that would be my answer. If I may just add to this, uh, Victoria, and by the way, thank you very much for joining us today. It's organized yesterday at short notice, and I apologize for not being here earlier. Um, Pleasure. Pleasure is fine. When you, when you look at uh, this, obviously, uh, when you worded it carefully, as you just did, it should, and it would have to, but arriving at that dissolution, as a, at that disintegration of that imperialist um, yeah, conundrum Russia is, without significant force, that is highly unlikely. Now, the force can... I just posit, posit this to you and would like to know what you think about it. Um, continued sanctioning and containment, which evidently is harder for uh, a state such as Russia when compared, for example, North Korea, it requires significant naming and shaming, whether this is a tribunal or whether this is just literally only Ukraine doing so and being supported by the coalition of the willing in communications worldwide and institutions such as, of course, in, within um, the framework of Europe, the EU making it clear to Russia that there is no trading in whatever form and no acceptance of cultural exchange, which up until recently Europeans didn't quite, didn't quite abide by this, still thought that there is something to be saved in Russia. Having listened to all the interviews of our colleagues and people in recent weeks, it doesn't seem likely. Is that the strategy? Containment, uh, breaking off the cultural component, banning tourists. Is that the way forward? Because otherwise, how would, in the pressure cooker of uh, the Russian culture and nation, any change be induced? It's a, it's a good question, of course. It's a question of what strategy will work to uh, dissolve this uh, prison of nations, uh, Russian Federation. Um, I think no one has a crystal ball to say this is the strategy and this will work. But without trying, um, we will still have um, an empire as our neighbor, living next to us, always thinking about destroying Ukraine as a sovereign and independent state. And um, that will be a threat, not just for Ukraine, but for all and everyone on European continent. That's, I think, what we need to understand. How to achieve that particular goal is another question. Um, I was born in 1974, so I remember the days when we had really 
really bad times and struggling to even buy simple things, um, food in uh, stores. Like I would stand for two, three hours on the eve of uh, uh, New Year. I remember it was year eight to nine and um, the eve of 90. And for three hours with like minus 10 of 15 Celsius just to get a piece of bread for uh, because there was nothing there and still um you wouldn't feel that there was like a, a strong movement to uh dissolve uh, uh soviet union right and it just happened that the economic pressure that was created through uh the um energy market by the way um made the the, that particular empire insolvent and forced it into um, breakup, a bit, bit breakup. It's just some nations that were trying to leave Russian Federation. They tried, they attempted to do the same when Ukraine got it uh, independence. Um, they didn't succeed. The uh, Russia, Russian Federation wouldn't let them leave this big empire. But there were attempts to uh, to leave uh, that prison of nations, we call it. Um, I believe that there is a possibility that maybe time will come that the same scenario will evolve. But I can tell you this, um, it will not happen overnight. An economic uh, struggle that Russians will go through um they are not going to work i mean they will not force people to go on the streets and uh demand changes uh straight away um, yeah and it has never happened in the history for example of russia that exactly. people went to the streets uh the only time it actually occurred in some shape or form was organized starting in, in 1905 with trotsky uh, throughout 1907 and then again uh after the loss of tannenberg and brestitovsk it was essentially the communist movement which started um heavy duty but orchestrated very orchestrated mutinies and uh, upheaval so there was no overall revolt by the normal peasant population because it simply had no power left and no concept of self-government you're absolutely correct and this is why i believe those nations who are seeking their independence they have to start thinking about how they will organize themselves and how they are going to prepare themselves to govern their own countries that's their um homework that they also need to do to uh make sure that this dissolvent happens to, and um it happens fast and uh they will have a chance and be able to govern their own uh, states. It's also an important part of the story. I, I will have a follow-up question to this, but let, let us go to CJ. I know that he is also under time pressure a little. CJ, please. Thank you, Axel. And Victoria, it's so, it's so great to have you here. So my background is I'm a U.S. Army officer who was stationed in Europe, and I was fortunate enough to train with uh, the Ukrainian 81st Air Assault Brigade back in 2018, 2019, pretty extensively. And, you know, it was interesting hearing their combat experiences in the Donbass. You know, they said at the time, if they simply had more gear and better equipment from NATO and other countries, they would be able to win. And it was hard to see at the time. But now I think that's becoming more and more clear. Mm -hmm. How do you 
<laughs> which is very encouraging. I know there's still a way to go. But my, my question for you is, I know you're a big proponent, of course, of, of more countries giving military aid. But how do you think this um, increased military aid to Ukraine helps with the agency Ukraine has in negotiating for better economic deals and the eventual rebuilding of the country? Because as we've talked a lot in the last couple of days, you know, in Kharkiv and a lot of other the liberated areas, there is a lot more, of course, economic need and other things needed. And that seems to be maybe less sexy, a little bit harder to sell on the international uh, information space as as is weapons. So how do you think those things are related, I guess I would say? Well, I think the first relation, obviously, that we need to make is that the better we are equipped, the faster we can regain control over our own territory and the less um, casualties, sorry for using that word, but lost lives and um, uh, we will have, and uh, I think um, um, there is no way how we can value, although I understand that there are people in this world who have specific jobs to value um, a person's life, uh, but there is no way to assign the correct value to anyone's life. So I think it's important to have that in mind constantly, that by providing more weapons, uh, better support, uh the world is saving Ukrainian lives, uh, full stop. When it comes to economic impact, I think we need to understand two things. Obviously, the less damage there is, so the less time Russia has to um, destroy uh, Ukraine economically, the uh, less of a burden there will be on our partners, so to say, to uh, fulfill what they've already committed to, which is to rebuild or build a new Ukraine and help us to do that. And um, although we have, again, different numbers right now, uh, how much Ukraine needs, but it still is uh, in the range of $300 billion to like $700 billion. It's big numbers and it's not an easy task. It's not an obvious one. It's not um, uh, something like a trivial task to come invest and uh, come to country bring some money, invest into it uh, just in one, two, three simple projects. No, it's going to be a quite a complicated uh, task. So the last the financial burden, uh, the, the, the easier I think it will be for everyone when time comes to um, rebuilding Ukraine. And the third, uh, and I think it's most important part that I wanted to stress your attention to, is that while I hear discussions about rebuilding Ukraine when we win this war, which means uh, when we return control over Ukrainian territory, sovereign territory uh, that was determined in 1991, so including uh, Donbass, Dan Lugansk, and um, obviously Crimea. We also have urgent needs of rebuilding critical infrastructure uh, that uh, Russians are destroying right now as we speak by destroying um, electric uh, lines, by destroying uh, heat and power stations, by destroying gas distribution centers, etc. Without them, without this working critical infrastructure, it will be, and it seems like it will be, a quite a challenging uh, winter 
for Ukraine, not just from the perspective of uh, astronomic uh, energy prices, but in terms of just critical infrastructure being in place and being the one that is working and operational. Victoria, thank you very much for being here. Uh, agree with everything you're saying. Uh, we've been saying some similar things in this space, though not as Ukraine themselves. Uh, I want to ask something that I wanted to take two different threads you've said and what you said and sort of bring them together and ask a simple question, which is, um, as Ukraine is trying to rebuild going forward, and I know you, you personally have a, a background in combating oligarch influence, um, how does Ukraine, uh, you know, and anyone else trying to help, get the Russian money out of Ukraine, uh, both now and going forward? And, and I'm assuming we want to, want to keep that money out. How does that happen? Uh, this is a very good question. Mm, and I believe it's not just about how to get Russian money out of Ukraine. It's more of a question how to uh, identify those assets through which they still have influence over Ukraine in one way or another. I.e., we need to have a clear ownership structure and understanding on all assets of critical infrastructure, including those in energy sector, for example, uh, because, again, Russian used to use those assets to blackmail uh, Ukraine in the past by creating artificial uh, shortages of um, specific energy resources that threw our country into blackout back in 2013-2014, for example. So the first step is that we need to do our homework and um, get uh, um, an understanding of the ownership structure and who is standing behind all of those uh, Cyprus, uh, Marshall Islands, and other jurisdictions, BVIs, uh, companies that are registered as owners of our gas distribution centers and etc uh, etc et i mean all the critical infrastructure that we have in place and strategic and strategic uh, companies as well so that's the first step second step and this is what ukraine is doing already uh how ukraine has started to uh, the confiscation process over assets that belong to those russians that are being sanctioned uh by ukraine and and it's an official process it's being based on the court hearings and the court uh uh, decisions, so it's not just someone decided to come and uh, seize the the assets. It's it's everything is done according to the law. And the third uh, part is that we need to make sure that in the future we watch really closely when um, ownership structures of key assets in Ukraine, in, especially in critical infrastructure, when they change hands change the ownership structure uh, we should have a red flag um, and see both for, for, for Russians or directly uh, involved in trying to acquire um, this or that asset or through their intermediaries um, so not to let that happen full stop Thank you is, is there, Has there been a movement to, to make uh ownership of assets. I know real estate's also a good place to look at because this is very easy to use that for 
influence for local, more local political things. Has there been a movement to make um, all assets far more clear on ownership structures and, and uh, you know, beneficial owners being clear as far as corporate structures go in Ukraine? So work in progress, but we're not there yet. Um, as lots of uh, Ukrainian oligarchs are not interested in revealing the real connections that they have still have with uh, Russian businessmen. So there is an opposition to this idea, but without going through such an exercise, I believe not a single euro dollar, whatever British pound should be invested into any projects in Ukraine when we get to the reconstruction or construction stage. That would be uh, um, my ideal uh, first objective that we need to achieve is to have a clear ownership, beneficial ownership and uh, structure of, of all the assets where uh, we are thinking that will have to attract uh, foreign investor investments and um, in one way or in one form or another when the reconstruction or construction uh, of a new Ukraine stage when we reach that stage. Have I answered Thank you. your question? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, you, you even answered the follow-up question I was considering, which is uh, how do you how do you do this without um, you know, clearly if the Russian, uh, formerly too close to Russian oligarchs are gone, such as, uh, Medvedchuk being the most extreme, I think, I'm sure you could probably name others. Uh, you know, if they're gone, my, my follow-up question is, you know, how do you, uh, try to rebuild Ukraine in such a way that, that you're creating a, a more decentralized, broad-based, <clears throat> uh, shared economy as mm-hmm. opposed to just another, another oligarch? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a view on that, and it will take, of course, time to describe it. I don't know how much time we have, because I have another, like, maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, um, first, um, I believe that this reconstruction of Ukraine, or c- constructing a new Ukraine, because, again, I don't see any benefit of rebuilding the uh, metallurgical plants or, um, for example, power stations that were built based on Soviet type, Soviet time design, and based on the um, uh, technologies of the uh, last uh, previous century doesn't make any sense. So we will need to find new solutions, more effective solutions, greener solutions. And um, having said that, I do believe that we need to have um, strategy that will be based on um, the following principles. First, we need to uh, distinguish, like separate projects that will be realized for the benefit of sp- specific communities. And this is where communities and um, specific regions should have their say, as we have one of the m- most effective um reforms that I voted for and it was um, fully supported by the parliament uh, from the previous convocation, the decentralization report uh, reform. We need to make sure that local communities have their say in choosing what project 
is to be implemented at what community. Uh, it's the local people that should choose from variety of projects that will be should be provided like uh, offered them uh, they have to like feel their responsibility for the choices that they're making in terms of choosing the best solutions for for their communities uh, it's the learning process that we need to go through um, especially when it comes to uh, uh, that um, feel of responsibility for for the decisions made uh, it's really important that will, it will help our um, communities and people on the ground feel that they are, uh, the, the, their voice is uh, worth uh, and is being considered and uh, they have a, a say in uh, developing their own communities. So that's, that's the first principle. So the, when it comes to local um, solutions, local projects, it should be uh, local communities that should have a say. When we talk about um, projects, uh, when we talk about investments into um, infrastructure, critical infrastructure, where the state benefits or a couple of regions benefit from developing, uh, this is where we need to have to set up clear rules as to um, the ownership. So who is going to own this particular asset who is going to operate it because when it comes to local communities uh, it's more or less clear that it's the local community that will own the asset, private uh, owner it, it's their decision uh, but when it comes to the state uh, we need to make sure what, that we're not going to have too much of the state ownership in our whole economy so that we're not going to become um, another um, sort of like a quasi-Soviet uh, uh, Union or, um, I don't know, I think it was Greece that used to have quite a significant percentage of, of the state and its economy. So we don't want to go that path. But there will be a certain period in our history when all of those projects will be uh, realized, when the state is going to have a significant uh, stake there. So it's important to declare clearly what is going to happen to those assets, who is going to manage them, what will be the strategy, whether they will be privatized or not. And overall, the objective should be to get rid of oligarchs uh, in each and every sector, but creating by developing um, real competitive players by using those funds that will be provided to Ukraine. And that might be, and I hope it will be, the, one of the most effective way how to make Ukrainian oligarchs just ordinary big businessmen who operate in competitive, open, transparent markets. So uh, I will stop here because I can talk for a long time on that particular subject, but I think it's important to uh, remember those points, distinguish local versus state, state clear uh, rules of the game. Um, we need to create competitive environment uh, and uh, make it all in transparent way and have all the rules of the game set up and communicated clearly even before any investments are made. I hope I made myself clear. 
thank you very much, Victoria. I appreciate it, even if uh, uh, th this is fascinating for me, perhaps more than many of our listeners, but I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, Tim, you seem to have a follow-up question. Yeah, sure. Um, while we're kind of in the vicinity of this topic, um, I wanted to talk about uh, corporate governance um, and uh, in the institutional culture of private business in uh, Ukraine, um, especially with your uh, with your you know your corporate governance, your former corporate finance hat on. Um, now, could you could you speak a little around the level of uh, international uh, of, of you know compliance with international convention? Uh, the quality of uh, private institution, institutional governance in Ukraine. And then I have a couple of follow-up questions around that. Uh, corporate governance. Uh, it's, again, part of the reform uh, package that was voted in the previous convocation. And uh, it's, uh, I would say, it's a process of learning by doing. There are positive examples um, of uh, this reform and uh, positive impacts of having uh, independent board members at the state uh, level, uh, state companies levels. There are um, uh, not so good examples of people are just uh, sitting um, officially on their uh, in their board seats and not actually contributing much into developing the strategy and uh, implementing the strategy for specific companies for in specific um, um, industries. But overall, there is no other way. I mean, we haven't seen any um, other um, options or, um, should I say, like approaches of the best way to uh, address the issues of corruption, uh, especially in at the at the level of state companies, uh, corporate governance and the, and the instruments that it provides, actually is the way forward for major Ukrainian uh, state-owned companies, which, in my from my perspective. Uh, should be uh, privatized and they should be privatized on, um, on the merit of transparent, competitive, again, platform and approach, not like it used to be during you know, COVID time and uh, before him when privatization was just a, a word that was used while uh, the terms of privatizations were written in such a way that specific oligarchs would have uh, would win uh, in all of those privatization auctions. Um, everything was predetermined. So we need to avoid that for sure. But overall, it's the right way. But it's a, um, it's, it's a work in progress. Thank you very much. Um, I'd I have one follow-up question, and then I guess we should open up to, uh, to some audience questions. Um, when I was involved, I used to be involved with a, uh, uh, with a company in supply chain finance, and one of our markets was Ukraine uh, mm -hmm. before we had to put uh, we had to put the business in Ukraine on hold uh, when Russia when Russia when Russia invaded in uh, uh, invaded in February. Um, one of the concerns we had from international debt investors was around the uh, was around the security of debt held against Ukrainian entities and the ability of international investors to enforce those claims in court. Now, could you could you talk a little around that in do one do you think those concerns were founded 
Um, and number two, do you uh, do you think that this situation is being worked on if it exists? You know, what what's the outlook when it comes to rule of law based security of investment in well, the rule of law, the judicial reform is not completed. Mm, let me put it this way. We started it back in, I believe, 2017 uh, and 16, but it hasn't been completed yet. Uh, we need to do, again, our homework and clean up uh, our courts from those who are used to... Um, I don't like the word make their money, but it's it's like uh, based on uh, lots of judges used to work not in in courts just for the sake of getting bribes for the uh, decisions that they were making. So it was like a competition who is going to give more, bring more cash to a particular. Uh, um, judge to get uh, the um, decisions that uh, either party wanted to get but it's it's a it's a different situation right now um the the cleansing of the uh, not cleansing but uh cleaning not cleansing cleaning of the of the system had started and uh we're getting more and more really uh real not reliable but um real judges or judging based on the rule of law, not uh, based on the rule of uh, um, um, size of the uh, back with cash that is brought to his or her um, office. Um, let me put it this way. So I would say that the claims that you've heard, they mm, might be justifiable, but um, especially now, the nerve, uh, the level of acceptance of any form of corruption in Ukraine, it has uh, reached to the level where it just became intolerable. People just cannot tolerate it. Uh, and it's, it's really important because it's a fundamental change that is happening, not just at the institutional level, but the, at the psychological level of the entire nation. And um, it's the change that you cannot just uh, not uh, notice and recognize. So that would be my answer to your question. Thank you. So, so Im improvements made, but more, more improvements to be made, uh, I guess would summarize that, would you say? There are some improvements to be made. Yes, there are a couple of laws that are being uh, adopted uh, recently that will make a really significant impact on the process of uh, selecting and nominating and selecting judges. So the, the selection process will be much more rigorous and it will be much more difficult for uh, certain groups of judges to remain in their seats, uh, they will have to go. And uh, so that's one of the ways how the system is already in the process of reforming and will be completely reformed, um, I believe, within a short period of time. Marvellous. Thank you very much, Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, unless, 
unless Financer Axel have any other questions. Finance Axel. I'll take that as a, as a note. Um, let's go to the man who decodes trolls, decoding trolls. Welcome up. Um, hi, thank you. Um, I just had one observation, which you may or may not wish to comment on. Um, but it is that one of the consequences of the, the attacks by Muscovy on Ukraine is that the assets of many oligarchs, the, the, the local, the regional, but even the district and Ramada oligarchs with assets maybe up to $100 million or $60 million, a lot of them will have lost their asset base. And this provides an opportunity to equalize. And as you mentioned, a privatization process, which takes into account the lessons learned from the 1990s. So I, I just wanted to plant that idea, which has occurred to me. Um, and as I say, you may not wish to comment on it, but it's um, I, and I, I don't quite know how you would take advantage of this if they're assets. I'm thinking of grain elevators and, and um, assets like that, which are used to control uh, local agricultural production, for instance. But now those people will have lost the, their assets. And this is an opportunity to create a fairer um, uh, distribution of uh, power at the local and district and regional level. Well, such assets, obviously, they have to be legally seized. And uh, then um, they will become uh, part of uh, the uh, state-owned um um, assets group and then they have to be privatized and uh, obviously a, by doing this we will first of all eliminate uh, the influence that Russians had on specific industries by owning certain assets and on the other hand we will provide an opportunity for Ukrainians and not just Ukrainians, I believe also international players and international investors should be uh, allowed and they will be allowed, obviously. It's the question when will they will be ready to participate in such privatization process, when foreign investors are going to be ready to come to Ukraine and invest. Thank you. You're welcome. Eric, welcome up. Thanks. Uh, really interesting discussion, this. I, I just wanted to say, and maybe this is totally out there, but my specialization is, is actually corporate governance. That's what, I, that's what I've been working on the last 10 years. And I, I work as head, head of corporate governance but for a very major institution owner, one of the biggest in, in, in Europe, and obviously corporate governance for over 4,000 companies. So I just want to reach out, and if you, if you want any help, or if you want any, and anyone like that has an institutional perspective in corporate governance and what international, international, uh, asset owners look at when it comes to corporate governance and what demands they put, I'm more willing to help, uh, if you, if that would, would be interesting. So it's just, an, just an offer of help, nothing else. Oh, that's, that's really great to hear. Absolutely. I would really appreciate that because I think it's important even to formalize such requests 
uh, and added to the recovery plan for Ukraine. So to say that these are the requirements of international communities and international investors, and this is the homework that Ukraine needs to do to be able to attract the best investors and um, move on with that. Yeah. Yeah. So my DMs are open. So if you want to just reach out, we can do that. Sure. Let's do that. Thanks. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, uh, Vic- Victoria, do you do you have time for a few more questions, or do you need to disappear? I- either answer is fine. Um, I have two, ten more minutes, so we can continue. Okay, fantastic. Um, did uh, oh, I see uh, Auntie is coming up with his hand up. Uh, Finance, did you want to ask something first? I, I did. Let me let's let Auntie go real quick, and then I will go after Auntie. Thank you, Auntie. Thank you so much, and uh, what a pleasure. Uh, to see you here, Victoria, and thank you for uh, coming to the space. Pleasure is all mine. So uh, I was wondering if you could uh, paint us a broad strokes picture about the um, situa- general situation of uh, municipalities in, in Ukraine. Uh, what kind of challenges there, there are and how many of them are, uh, I don't know, structural or re- related to the current war and, and so forth? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, when it comes to municipalities, and uh, we need, I think, to break them into uh, three major groups. Uh, first are those that are being uh, affected by the war um, with the part or fully destroyed um, uh, critical infrastructure, residential area, um, schools, uh, hospitals, etc., and those that are re- liberated. So this is where Ukrainian... Uh, Ukrainians regain control over those municipalities. They have their own set of challenges. Uh, and I'll list them, uh, after, after this short description. There is another group of, um, municipalities that were not affected by, uh, shellings and bombings, but they have their own challenges. And I'll touch on them. And the third, that are still under occupation. Uh, so we need to distinguish those three groups. Um, let's start with the general challenge that um, all of those municipalities have in respect of, for example, uh, coming winter. Uh, the greatest challenge is that we understand that Russia is going to continue its strategy of Holodomor, we call it. Uh, Holodomor standing that uh, um, Russians will destroy, uh, try to destroy the um, energy assets, the uh, assets of critical infrastructure to make cities and towns uninhabitable. Because if you look at, and if you just do a simple scenario analysis, uh, let's take uh, Kiev and there were back in March attempts to cause major damage to uh, power plants, and there were short uh, some problems with electricity and heat supply. If something like that happens again, and um, major parts of the stations are destroyed, with the temperatures uh, plus five to zero, people in their flats will not be able to leave. Uh, without electricity and without heat, even if the electricity is there, um, still our grid is not going to be capable of um, letting everyone 
use the electric heating um, equipment to um, uh, to uh, warm their apartments. So the apartment buildings, there will be a place where people cannot, just will not be able to leave, right? Um, and here comes a question. There will be part of... Uh, people, citizens of such cities that will be able to evacuate and go to their relatives, uh, uh, friends somewhere outside of the city and somewhere to villages where people have their private houses where they can at least use uh, other means to warm up and um, keep the uh, premises where they live warm. Uh, in the city itself, it's just going to be next to impossible. But there are people who don't have such plans, who don't have such options of uh, evacuating uh, due to financial constraints, due to uh, health problems. And uh, people uh, of uh, uh, respective age just might not be able even to leave physically their apartments. So the, the, the challenge is to have, um, prepare, to prepare the um, places uh, for people to find um, a rescue from uh, freezing from their uh, from freezing that will come from their uh, flats and apartments so the municipalities should establish some sort of like a chain uh, centers where people can go and uh, get uh, um, basic services or basic needs uh, to uh, to deal in such uh, to deal with challenges of such situation municipalities they recognize that they need to do that but they don't have any money that's the problem that's uh, the, the biggest challenge the biggest problem uh, why they don't have enough money or just don't have the money because of the um, economic impact that the war has lots of businesses unfortunately hasn't returned or is just in the process of coming back uh, lots of businesses are they had to close uh, due to damaged uh, I don't know damage caused by shellings and uh, other causes uh, because of the people who left the country uh, and uh, refugees that, that just went outside of Ukraine so they didn't have enough force to um, keep their business going. So uh, local communities, uh, their budgets are almost empty. They are hardly making their, uh, covering their needs, the current needs that they have under existing budget. And to have additional funds to create such centers, they just cannot do that. They don't have financial capacities to do that. So this is one of the biggest challenges for uh, major cities right now. Uh, they are preparing for the winter, but they cannot um, make sure that they have enough or just, not just enough, but they have all these uh, shelters where people can find uh, the way how to deal uh, with challenges if the, uh, there is no heat and electricity and running water in their apartment buildings. So this is the major issue for everyone. Uh, when it comes to the first uh, group, like let's take Chernihiv, uh, this is where 
the major shelling and bombing uh, took place back in March. Uh, half of the city is without electricity and uh, with the, they're not going to get any heat into the apartment buildings because the, the heat and power station was completely destroyed by Russians. And obviously, don't ha- they don't have any money to rebuild it. So um, even if people want to come back to their cities, they understand that they cannot, uh, given current uh, circumstances. The same issue Chernihiv has with the water supply. And um, in our centers, we're trying to reach out to European Commission, to uh, German government and uh, USAID, asking them for technical support, technical aid to provide those cities, not with money. They're, they're not asking for money. They're asking for actual like physical equipment that they need uh, to have uh, running water, to have uh, um, restored uh, heat supply and um, electricity production, etc., but it's it's a it's a very complicated issue. Um, the third group, occupied territory. Oh, it's a it's a it's a long story. I met with the uh, represent the mayor of one of the cities that's been under occupation for the last five months from the southern Ukraine, and the stories he was telling me yesterday for hours, uh, they are horrible. What is happening right there, right now? Um, with people, uh, with cleansings and with uh, interrogations, uh, with uh, the pressure uh, that is coming from um, Russians, uh, with uh, especially when in respect of uh, educational process, uh, Russians bringing their um, teachers to schools and making Ukrainian. Uh, kids sing uh, Russian anthem, uh, say that uh, Ukrainian government is a terrorist state, etc., etc. It's the brainwashing of our kids. It's just one of the story that uh, is a very sad one. And um, but I can talk about it for a long time. So different cities, different municipalities, they have different challenges, but there are lots of commonalities, especially when it comes to the winter, as Russia is going to make our life as uh, uh, hard as possible, but we will survive. There is no other way. We will survive. We will win. Slava Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. Victoria, I have a question from uh, one of our our fellow often panelists and sometimes co-hosts who has PM'd it into me, if you can take time for a brief question. Sure. One more question. Understand. Uh, the question is, um, to what extent will, do you think post-war Ukraine will ban, uh, Russian Federation citizens so, from visiting Victoria? We can't hear you at all. Uh, Tim, I believe we have lost Victoria at this point. I can't hear Victoria either. Um, I'm trying Victoria, to. Victoria, welcome back. Thank to the you. Panel. I'm trying to. It's really weird because I was really standing at the same spot for all this time, and for some reason, I got disconnected from everything, just all of a sudden. Yeah, we we totally lost you. I'm afraid. Um, we were we uh, were in the middle of a question uh, from finance, which was actually relayed by one of our co-hosting team. 
Um, and so I'll ask you, I'll ask you that. And then we have a very interesting question from Watchful Eye, uh, if you have time. Um, so a quick question from our one of a member of our hosting team. Um, when it, uh, it, it's, do you anticipate that there will be labor shortages in the reconstruction of Ukraine? Um, and if so, uh, what would the Ukrainian government's attitude to citizens of the Russian Federation who find themselves in Russian territory um, and potentially citizens of the Russian Federation who find themselves outside Russian territory, uh, sorry, outside Ukrainian territory, I beg your pardon, um, assisting in the reconstruction efforts? Uh, there might be um, a shortage of labor. Um, and still, I believe, given the fact how many Ukrainians used to work outside of Ukraine, it's millions of people uh, with the work here, with families, their families and relatives here. I think there will, we will see uh, an inflow and um, coming back uh, to motherland of Ukrainians and not just Ukrainians as labor force, but investors as well. Um, I strongly believe that uh, that will be the uh, trend that we will see. When it comes to Russians, um, I think Russians should ask themselves first whether they really want to work uh, in uh, the country that they were trying to uh, liberate from Nazis. Um, sorry, excuse my cynicism, but um, it's really, I think, uh, a question to uh, the whole nation, whether the whole nation is ready to recognize and uh, speak aloud about the um, crimes they've committed uh, by um, supporting the killings of innocent uh, women and children. Um, so they have to go through this process first. And when they, as a nation, um, um, at least um, say that they are sorry, then there might be some sort of uh, uh, we can start thinking about mending all of those wounds that were caused. But at least one generation or two generations, um, I think the attitude towards Russians uh, of Ukrainians will be quite straightforward. Do you, uh, finance? Do you, uh, do your kind of more familiar with this issue than I am. Do you feel that uh, that answers the question? I know I didn't express the question very well. Oh, I, I think you expressed the question just fine. And Victoria's answer hit all of the things that I actually said, all of the main points I, I said back privately myself. Um, look, uh, I'm, you know, as I say regularly in the space, sometimes it matters that I'm, I'm a Jewish guy and uh, I can't imagine anybody uh, of my faith uh, welcoming um, a literal Nazi back within a decade or two of uh, World War II um, to exactly. help with anything. So, and every Ukrainian I know feels that way about uh, the Russian Federation. So, I, 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 my assumption is even if the Kerch Bridge is standing when the war ends, that it will probably be blocked and closed. Like, <laughs> it's, like it, my, my guess is no desire for anything to be driving from Russia to Ukraine right now, unless I'm missing something. Fully concur with what you're saying. Thank you, Victoria and Finance. Uh, 
Thank you, Victoria, for coming back to us. Um, if you have a couple more minutes, we have one question from Watchful. Um, and then we will just one. <laughs> so Watchful, just one, please. please. Understood. Understood. Watchful, please ask your question again. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so Hi. much for for gracing uh, this space with uh, your participation. No, 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 time. no. It's not about gracing. It's really, <laughs> I'm really, really, truly thankful for all the people who've created this place, for all the listeners, for all the commentators. Uh, it's really incredible. Um, it, it, as I said, the honor is all mine. Uh, the question that, that I asked, one of the questions that I asked you in, um, while you're having uh, technical uh, difficulties was if there, were, if there is a regional or from further afield an example or template that Ukraine is looking at, at other countries that have gone through the transitions that uh, you have been discussing successfully and um, could uh, present Ukraine with some shortcuts so that you can achieve that in, in much better time. Thank you. From the discussions uh, I've participated and I've heard uh, in different capitals, I can tell you that uh, even our international partners are a little bit puzzled as to what should be the best um, the best uh, solution for Ukraine and what. Um, like infrastructure should be in place from the institutional point of view in order to make this whole story a success. Um, because we're talking about uh, one of the biggest um, countries in terms of territories uh, in Europe. We're talking about hundreds of billions of uh, euros uh, of investments required. And um, I can tell you this, there is, with the IC at least, and this is what I observe already, there is a growing competition, which is good, among our potential donors as to who is going to in, invest into what, what rules of the game, so to say, should be uh, implemented. Everyone is saying that, that yes, it's the it's Ukraine uh, that should um, manage this process. It should be our ownership and our ownership. But um, I, I see that um, the um, the group of countries who believe in our victory is uh, the the group of willing uh, to support is growing, and uh, with that the demand from private sector especially to participate in uh, the reconstruction is um, growing, which is good, and it puts some pressure, additional pressure on the state government uh, of each and every particular country. So, no, there is no, I think, clear cut. What we understand, as was mentioned while I was trying to get uh, uh, back, is that Estonia is one of the best examples when it comes to e-government, e-governance. And uh, this is uh, the way forward for us. We have already lots of successful stories. And uh, the platform that we have, uh, DIA, we already have exported to it to, for example, Poland, 
and the documents that we have in this uh, this platform, this application, uh, which are all digital, like passport, foreign passport, local passport, uh, driving licenses, they're already accepted by Poland, as far as I understand. So we're, we're now the question is not just about importing the bus solutions from Ukraine to Ukraine, but exporting them to outside world. There are lots of things to be proud of. Absolutely. And this is, you know, this is a point we made, uh, you know, I, I, I made to you the other day, you know, it's when it comes to the NATO issue, uh, it's uh, there's this idea that NATO would somehow be doing Ukraine a favor by allowing her to join. Um, I mean, if anything, I think it's the opposite way around. You know, Ukraine, um, I don't want to say thanks to this war, but as certainly as a consequence of this war, um, Ukraine has amassed military expertise that NATO can only really dream of, you know, in terms of practical experience. Um, and I think uh, I mean, Ukraine, with a seat at the table of be it the EU, of NATO, etc., etc., uh, she brings so much to that table um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and very much negotiating from a position of strength, in my opinion. Yeah, I truly believe that NATO is or should be at least much more interested in getting us on board than just Ukraine uh, um, getting the uh, membership in NATO, especially given uh, the length of the reaction uh, of article on Article 5 of up to 60 days. I don't remember uh, president of which Baltic states said, but if NATO would uh, uh, follow that uh, particular rule if they were invaded, then Russia could have or will would uh, take over the uh, their territory in a matter of days. While some people in uh, wherever like Brussels will make a decision whether to support this country or not. So yes, uh, I I've heard that uh, comment yesterday, and uh, I. Uh, I fully concur with them with it thank you very much now uh victoria i know you have to disappear so i don't want to i don't want to be abusing your time Um, i'd like to thank you on behalf of uh, all of the thank you and uh, the volunteers at maria report um for your presence here for your uh for your answers and uh, for your continued work in support of your country so thank you very much and you're welcome here anytime thank you pleasure have a good day You too, Victoria. As I said, if you want to be a, a guest anytime, let us know. Give us a day or so. We're happy to try to schedule something, put out a card, let everyone know. If you just want to drop in, you're welcome to do that anytime. Uh, I'm sure literally all of our hosts would be happy to pull you up and uh, hear what you have to say. So I hope your next meeting goes swimmingly well. And Slava Ukraini. Um, Slava. Thank you.